Hello and welcome to Now Indonesia with me, Arister Spears. This is a podcast created to explore the cultural, commercial and diplomatic worlds of this eclectic archipelago through interviews with a rich variety of individuals. Most of the people I meet are acknowledged leaders in their fields and constructive and active thinkers. They are people who make things happen and help to shape the society we live in, right here in Indonesia. Thanks for being with us. Today I'd like to introduce a very special guest, a lady whose profile has been remarkably low considering the amount of incredible things she has done over her long career so far. You may not know the name Susie Hutomo, but you certainly know the name The Body Shop Indonesia, a group that she helped to found many years ago, and a group which commands respect because it has such good principles of helping the community, preserving nature and looking after the environment. But as well as being a successful and ethical business lady, she is also an active environmentalist and a, certainly an activist in sustainability, where she has her own blog and podcast called Sustainable Susie. Today we're going to interview her and ask her what else she does apart from looking after the world and looking after our community. So welcome uh, to you, Ibn Susie. It's wonderful to see you. Thank you very much, Alistair. So good to be here with you. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying uh, living in Bali, especially now with work from home. It's just been really good for me. It, I'm so glad um, that you're enjoying it. That's great. Look, let's go right back to the beginning. When you co-founded The Body Shop, were you already a committed environmentalist or was that something that the philosophy that came with the Body Shop um, franchise um, helped you to crystallize? What, what's, what's the yeah. beginning of your consciousness of uh, the environment? Well, um, it began quite early as these things do, I guess. Um, my parents uh, were from Makassar, you know, uh, and, you know, in Makassar, you live very close to the ocean and there's also mountains, a bit like Jakarta, you have the ocean, you have the mountains. So any free time um, uh, was always devoted to going to the mountains or going to the ocean, you know, where they came from. And so when I was growing up, it was the same with my brother and sister. Mostly we were going to Pulau Seribu to fish or to uh, spend the weekend or we would go to in the early days and we didn't maybe have as much money, we would go to the coast to, to apa, the Catalinting and then, you know, sort of, you know, fishing and stuff like that, looking for clams or whatever. So, uh, and then uh, weekends, most weekends, in fact, were, were mostly in Puncak. And in those days, Puncak was still beautiful. It was still green, you know, there were, of course, the tea plantations, but, Beautiful girl. So my my memories as a child was always going out into nature. That's a very uh, strong, how to say, event, a very happy event for us in the family to all go out to nature. So um, 
that I think very early this connection with nature was was forged. And um, how did that turn into a, your passion now? Was it because things began to go wrong in Indonesia that you could visibly see the destruction taking place? Yes, very much so. So the more I learned about what's happening to all these places that I used to love and what was happening in Indonesia, well, I went away to school, as you know. And then when I came back and read all the data, the uh, in those days it was mining, not yet the plantations. And when I came home in the 70s, you know, it was the mining and it was, uh, you know, the loss of diversity and, and seeing uh, all the trees being cut down and stuff like that. It just... And then, you know, the use of pesticides, you know, because I went away to Singapore and after that to the U.S. where, um, as you know, Silent Spring, you know, uh, talked about DDT and, and the danger of pesticides. And here we are, Indonesia, happily using pesticides on everything. It was scary, really scary. And that made me, you know, an environmentalist. But I didn't really become so active yet. And then eventually what happened was uh, my mother uh, had an organic farm. And uh, so we began to understand a lot more about organics and what's wrong with the farming system and the environment. So that's it, you know, when <laughs> it all came together, I felt, you know, this was it. So I was already very much on that journey, already feeling I had to do something. And then the body shop arrived. So that just, you know, they just put the two pieces of the puzzle together, really, because I felt to myself, what can I do, you know, besides being a better consumer? And then when I met Anita, it was quite amazing that as a business person whom I was, I could actually make a fantastic impact. So it kind of fitted the pieces together. And that's a, that's a really good story to tell, because so many people in business think that business is something which has to fight against the environmental change rather than for it. Exactly. I mean, and so you, you're setting an example in the body shop, which uh, people are beginning to follow now. Uh, but as uh, we both know, um, it takes a very long time and a lot of persuasion. I, of course, am completely with you. When I arrived in Indonesia yes, I know you are. two years ago, we used to go to Kunchak and Pulau Sawibu and the water was clear and the hills were bare. So I'm, I'm with you 100%. Now, the body shop as a business has established itself very well. Has, has it managed to survive this COVID era and the closing down of the malls and the change in consumer behavior? Um, how, how, are, how are you doing? Well, it has been very challenging. Because as you said, the Clayston, because we were basically 93% uh, offline. And when everything closed down, you know, whoa, you know, that was a really big deal. And, and it really hurt us a lot. But we made um, a, how do you say, uh, a decision. We won't let any full-time employees go as much as possible. That's going to be our, the line we draw in the sand. And happily, we managed to do that. So we managed to survive. I think the, the whole point of 2020 was we managed to survive and come back for another day. That was the biggest objective we had. So during the, the, the lockdown, our employees scrambled and we set up a new WhatsApp 
business within two weeks. You know, they really, you know, work really hard. We all went, obviously, work from home where, you know, my husband and I made messages, you know, encouraging everybody. Our CEO was working day and night online. You know, we've got, you know, advisors, consultants telling us, you know, what we must do. You know, we just pulled out all the stops to make sure that our employees felt we're going to survive and that we understand how to navigate through this with the cash situation, with the closures. And now we're in progressing to become an omni, an omni not retailer, just an omni business, if you will, to make sure that our online channels are just as strong as our offline. So that's our transition. And that's why I think we're surviving. Um, but uh, it's 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 taking a while to come back, obviously, uh, in the bottom line. I mean, sales-wise, obviously, we've suffered the same decline that most people have. Our online's gone up, but hasn't quite gone up as quickly as we would have hoped because we were basically an offline retailer. So now we're fixing that to become uh, both online and offline. So yes, that's you're on your offline um, presentations, I think people were intrigued. They always used to walk around the shops and look at what the new products are and the very nicely displayed. Right. So, yeah, it's that's difficult to do online, but um, yeah. I'm sure that you're you're managing. Look, um, the the part of what we are doing in this this whole interview series this month is looking at the achievements of women in Indonesia. Um, as a, a lady entrepreneur, as a, a lady uh, environmentalist, what challenges have you faced, if any, as being a woman in Indonesia in business and in the environment? I think in the beginning, there's always a challenge because when you're younger and you don't have a, how to say, a strong sense of self, it's difficult because men are so much more used to just feeling is their right to say things to I don't know to to make themselves hurt it's like it's like how do you know they see it's a, it's a it's a normal thing it's a right whereas women you feel like should I make myself hurt is it my time to say something you know uh I felt that a lot when when you have like like going to a meeting with a lot of men or or going to um NGO things you feel like you know is it my turn yet <laughs> That's the a bit of a struggle. Eventually, as I got older and I became very much more clear about what I stand for, the stories that I had to tell, the things that I can have impact on, it became much easier because I know what I'm going to talk about and, and I can see the opportunities where I can, I can uh, contribute and probably say a lot more things that the men, you know, don't, they're not saying as much as I am. So why do, should I be you know, feeling that I don't have a right on this table, right? So that's that's a, a bit of a, how to say, a threshold you have to cross as a woman. Because, you know, as an Asian, you are brought up to be uh, bringing harmony to not so, I mean, you know, in I guess my culture, because my father was an entrepreneur, he didn't really expect a woman to pander to men. But he does, I mean, we were brought up to know that a woman's place was to bring harmony. It's not to bring, uh, how to say, discord or, or to give an uh, impression that something is wrong or something like that, if you know what I mean. They were supposed to be very harmonious and, and play the, the back game, you know? 
you know, after that, we can talk to people to smoothen things out. But in public, you, you don't necessarily become somebody who was argumentative or so that was the biggest barrier to to then understand no if, if men don't feel that way you know and and because we're women we do have a we can tap into a way of saying things that can be just as important but not necessarily uh bringing about a lot of um contention if you will so so it's 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 that's the threshold that i had come to cross in the early days, when right. I had to, you overcame these, and and there yeah. weren't any, there weren't any really nasty incidents where you felt I have been really um, subject to male chauvinism. Um, but yeah, I mean, you're always subject to male chauvinism. Come on, you know. <laughs> you're being underestimated most of the time, unless they knew who you were, which I don't really like. I don't like because in Indonesia, status. And women's status is bigger. That is something that we have to understand. And I don't like to come with status. I just don't like it. I, I don't like people to, to uh, how to say, label me due to my status. I, I want people to understand what I have to say and what I stand for, rather than because I am so-and-so's you know, daughter, owner, whatever. I don't like that stuff, personally. So I always come in as somebody with, with something to say or something, some, uh, a stakeholder. I believe in stakeholdership. You know, I come as a stakeholder and this is who I am and, and this is what I have to say. And, and I'd like to persuade you to my point of view or whatever I have to say. In the old days, I must be frank, I always brought a man with me. <laughs> if it's my husband or my staff who is pretty senior, who looks like he was important, then he would do a little introduction. Because I felt that it was easier that way. It would take a long time for me to lean in, you know. But today I'm much older, so I don't need that. But in the old days, I felt I had to because you know men generally like to listen to men first. If the men say okay, and now Ibu Susi would like to speak, then they'll listen. You know, or else I come in with big bangs with the big hair and the big back, and then they'll listen. But I don't like that. <laughs> well, on behalf of the male side of this uh, interview, I I apologize for my millions of colleagues over the years, but. We are making a difference now. Now, you've got the opportunity also to make that difference in the body shop. What, yes. how, are you, how are you addressing that throughout your, your whole um, business? Well, um, we are, we've signed on recently to the UN uh, Women because uh, Bu Erna Witular is the representative for UN Women and she contacted me. And we already, from our early days, um, have unwritten policies about women. Like if, if a child is sick, and you have to go home, you know, go. Nobody's going to ask you any questions. If a child is sick, don't come to work. That's just an unspoken. And we don't like meetings uh, after, you know, six. You, know, you could go over an hour, but that's it. You know, because a lot of our employees are women. And 96%, I mean, 93% women, I think we are. So women have to go home. You know, this is an unwritten rule for us. You know, we've recruited some senior women who actually said, I will only join if you, if you have no meetings at night. And I said, oh, thank God, because we don't like meetings at night. In the past, when we had very uh, old-fashioned men as leaders, because we did in the past, you know, and like about 25 years ago when, you know, there weren't very many women who were qualified and we had this head of uh, operations, he always had meetings into 10 o'clock and that was just terrible for women. So I said, no, we don't want that anymore change that 
So that's one. And then uh, other sort of soft policies, you know, we're always very kind to you. You're, we have uh, obviously things like uh, facilities for breastfeeding. Or, but now that we are now looking at the um, uh, women's uh, empowerment, uh, how to say, a statement from the UN, we're doing 10 more things so in the process. Our HR department, who's run by a woman, is now uh, looking into implementing 10 more policies for women. Yeah, including having a hotline for um, any complaints about harassment and so on. And the other thing, Alice says, we have a huge campaign out right now. We're collecting petitions in order to push the DPR to pass the law to eradicate sexual violence in Indonesia. This is a very important point. Uh, we surveyed our employees to say how many percent of you have heard uh, or experience, heard of experience sexual violence? And the answer is 96%. This is a huge issue in Indonesian society. And in this pandemic times, the, the um, how to say, the calls coming into the uh, Yayasan Puli, which is a uh, psycho counseling uh, hotline, has risen, I can't remember, it was like a three to four times yeah. in these times because there's more pressure, there's just more stress, so more violence against women. So, so this is our big campaign running right now. And, uh, you know, your listeners can all go to our, the website, uh, uh, the body shop, no, TBS fight for sistershood.co.id. Um, I think you're absolutely right. This is, this is so important. One of the things that we're addressing in this special section, of course, is the way in which journalists and the media also address this gender equality that the so often the victim turns into the perpetrator by the way in which it's expressed and we are absolutely horrified by that and we also want to try and help to change the way in which the media uh, always seems to end up saying she dressed sexually therefore she should have been raped i mean that sort of thing uh, no no, exactly. Uh, we've got a long way to go, unfortunately. On that. I'm glad you were, uh, you know, spreading that message because victim blaming is one of the key things we try to eradicate with the uh, RUU PKS, we call it, the Penghapusan Kekerasan Seksual. Well, good luck with that. Let's get that petition done. The, I think the, uh, the parliamentarians um, have sometimes got their priorities in the wrong order. It's yeah. people first, parliament <laughs> second, but... That's um, speaking as a foreigner, I'm not really allowed to express that. Am I? Yes, certainly. I understand that. So one of the great things that I admire about you is the fact that you stay looking after the environment is easy, fun and effortless. Yes. That's my experience, I have to say. Um, <laughs> do you think it's hard to get the whole Indonesian business on track with this sustainability? Um, How can it be easy, fun and effortless? Whatever it thinks is so okay. hard. Okay, so if you're onto my site and my Instagram, actually, you know, you see me doing all this, you know, sort of fun things. And that's uh, because I am basically also a communicator. And because I felt pe more people had to understand about the environment, I tried to do it in this way because I've got a, a very young production team, <laughs> very young, my daughter and my uh, niece and also uh, two other uh, young people. So they tell me that you have to be uh, doing TikTok style or what style. And I, I follow them because, you know, I want to connect with the young people. I think the young people are the future. 
However, for business, that's a totally different thing. Um, as you may know, this whole debate now on responsibility in business have moved from sustainability with the three, how to say three areas, you know, uh, they call it profit, people and planet. For me, it's always been the other way around. For me, it's always been a bullseye, you know, planet first, people, and then profit. The reason is that there can be no profit on a dead planet. You know, none of us ever realized, how can we ever make profit on a, on a planet that's dead? Come on, give me a break. You know, in 50 years time, you know, this is going to be the biggest problem we're facing. Look at the the uh, Arctic, um, what do you call it? The um, Yes, look at what's happening in the US. That's now the headline says climate change induced polar vortex. In the old days, never. Even Trump was saying it wasn't climate. Now they know it is because of the wavering of that, um, what you call it? Yeah, the, the solar, uh, the, the Arctic vortex is coming down because of climate change. And this is impacting business in a big way. And one day, people will realize in Indonesia, unfortunately, or fortunately, we're very blessed that, you know, Indonesia is a blessed country. We've got lots of forests, lots of natural resources, so much so we don't appreciate them. Even when they're disappearing, we don't appreciate them. So in that sense, the, the consciousness of the business community is not high. I must say, it's not high. And number two, they always want to understand how to make money first, which I think is not very creative. Like you said, you know, it could be business and regenerating nature all at the same time or business and bringing forward a consciousness of what everyone can do together. I mean, uh, we, we have done, uh, we have some, seen some, um, how do you say, surveys that now indicate the middle class, 50 million Indonesians, the concern about the environment is way up. The floods that has happened, Lamina year, you can see all the floods, all the plastic washing up on the Bali, not only in Bali, oh my God, everywhere. It's like, and I tell people, look, they are washing up. It is a problem. And I've been cleaning that, you know, I'm sorry, that <laughs> beach for two years. And you know what? The trash is still coming up. Why? Because the trash is in the ocean, guys. It's not about cleaning up. It's about Stopping that thing. Yeah, because even if you if the beach is clean, that trash is in the ocean, guys. Come on. With this whole plastic and um, environmental pollution, how who is responsible for this, uh, Susie? Is it the people who produce it, the consumers who throw it, or the government who um, should be collecting more rigorously and recycling? Okay. My, my view is maybe a little bit uh, different from other businesses, but I see that the environment, the quality of life that we live is everybody's responsibility. So if we live in a developing country, which we do, we have to understand that government doesn't or isn't able to or haven't come to a point where they can do all the things that the first world country does. I mean, you know, and therefore we need to understand if our brand is on something, then by extension, we are responsible for the problem that is caused by something that has our brand on it. 
Because, you know, it's ingenuous, I think, to say that I want to sell you something with my brand on it. But when this thing that has my brand on it ends up to be a problem, that's not my problem. You know, I, I, I just doesn't feel right to me. And you address that in the body shop by having a, a bottle return. Yes, yes, we do. And we give a good reward. I mean, I must be honest, I spoke to somebody, which I can't mention, from another corporation who also says, well, you've been successful. Tell me about it. I also want to do it. And I said, fine, I'll tell you what we do. And he said, ah, the reason you're successful is that your reward for bringing it back is quite significant. So I said, yeah, of course, I want this to happen because I'm a business person. I understand about circularity and understand how to incentivize people and how to make that work. So we give quite a good incentive for people to bring it back. That's why it's coming back. And even then, we're only collecting 22%. Which he says, oh, that's amazing, 22%. Are you kidding? He says in the industry, we don't have numbers like that. And that's because we have 150 collection points all over Indonesia. And we give people's incentive to bring it back, right? That you can use the points because you've got a loyalty system. And it's a good, it's, it's a good, I can't say what the value is because, you know, but it's a good enough incentive. Now we're going to the next step, Alistair. A, we're, going, we're working with somebody in Bali as well. Yeah, an organization called EcoCollab. So they're taking, we're sending, because uh, for the longest time, we've always collected our, our how to say, the, the, the things that are returned, we collect them, we sort them, and we make sure they're responsibly recycled. And now what we're doing is we're sending uh, uh, the PP type of plastic to EcoCollab. They're making products out of them, a soap dish and a mirror. And this will be launched in the body shop in probably after Lebaran, we will be launching it. And you as a member, you brought back the bottles. Now you see what is becoming. We are showing that we're the beauty brand that understands that we need to go circular. We need to be responsible. If we want to use plastic, we have to be responsible. Otherwise, don't use it. Just be responsible and think about it. Be innovative. That's why I say, you know, being environmentally friendly means you have to think. You have to go out of the current system. Go out of the current economic system that tells you to uh, take a resource, consume, and throw away, and maybe recycle it somewhere, somehow. That's not good enough. You need to know where it goes and has it come back. And I'm going to ask people to uh, bring back more. And I truthfully, you know, I'm lobbying the, the franchise uh, owner to say, please, we must make things 100% recycled. Please look at everything. And help me so that I can recycle everything, because that's a that's a quite a task. You know, they have to make sure everything is easily recycled. I mean, a lot of all of our stuff is recyclable, but some of them need special machines. Some, you know, in other words, really try and go into this movement. And exactly. also, like design for recycling. Yeah. Now we've been talking about that as well, especially, yeah. especially in buildings, in things that you never think. You can recycle, you have to rethink the whole paradigm. And the other thing is the body shop in international itself is already doing quite a great deal. All the PET is all 100% recycled. They have a uh, community project in India. So they pay the women in India to collect the PET, which is then shipped to the UK to be made into bottles for us. So we're taking waste away from a third world nation, it could have been Indonesia, but we're better off, you know, the Indians, are, the Indians worse, problem, and recycling it 
you know, up, uh, recycling it into our bottles. So our PET is all uh, post-consumer recycled from a community project. Fantastic. That's already happening. Yeah, and that's not something that is easy to discuss because it's quite complicated if you want to understand. If you're not an environmentalist, like, what? You mean you go to India? It's like, what? You know, <laughs> so it's not well known because it's not an easy thing to, to actually understand. You know, why would you want to do that? You know? True. So what do you think is the most important thing you've done in sustainability? Is, is um, it the whole recycling thing, the way which you've done it body shop, or is, is it, is it um, just the the way you're addressing it communication-wise? Yeah, I think the most important is that our recycling has been, of these bottles, have been the entry point to the consciousness about uh, responsible consumption and therefore the environment for... I don't know, what in 10 years, 15 years, I think we've been doing this. You know, originally we always collected bottles, but we never rewarded people. We just gave them a little flower or something, you know, thank you for being an inventor. You know, that didn't work. <laughs> this is a lesson. It works when it's all three you have to touch. You have to touch the communication. You have to touch the reward. Very good. Which with some of these uh, biggest companies is that the rewards aren't worth it for the consumer to do anything about it. Exactly. What is your next objective? How can we build back better? You're sitting in Bali now, which is suffering because it was dependent on one industry, which would never go wrong. It's gone wrong. But everyone's talking about build back better. Well, no. I've seen no one's actually built back during this downtime at all. There's been no advance on water, waste, energy management, no change of business in Bali to build back better. Well, How can we actually address this wonderful phrase, make it work? Well, two things. First is, yeah, I've been invited on the uh, Bali Tourism Board to be an environmental advisor to Pagusagung. And I have made how many presentations? Yeah, maybe three to the uh, one with the governor, one with this, uh, you know, technological school on tourism. And uh, about why the environment is the bedrock of everything we build on tourism. And I also took the GSTC uh, certification course on um, environmental, you know, sustainable tourism. I took that course and I actually made, <laughs> made members, one member of the VTB take the course as well. Because otherwise we can't talk, right? What's the point of me taking the course and I can't talk to everybody? Then COVID happened. So when COVID happened, the whole focus is on hygiene and health, unfortunately. So all the money, all the attention, everything, all resources went to COVID to tell the truth. So this is my, my sort of conundrum. You want to talk to people, you need to build back better. But the emphasis has been on COVID and how we can become a corridor, we can vaccinate and everything else. And the whole... Uh, what do you call it? A health and environmental certification, CHE or whatever. Yeah. yeah. The bubble system, corridors and all of that. Yeah. yeah. So so it's, it's one. Number two, I started my own project. I said, okay, you know what? If I can't affect anybody, I'm going to start my own project. And I live, as you know, close to Sanur Beach. 
And I have been walking on that beach for years and bemoaning the fact, what the hell, we are not cleaning up? How can we have the best and cleanest beach in Bali? So I have a project now with Kopernik. Uh, Yayasan Kopernik, I've uh, asked Kopernik to be on in on this project and we've got Robina Vikula also involved. So we are now talking to the Banjars. And so this is a very big lesson. It's, I've been on this project for two years. And the first year, it was me being an environmentalist. That didn't work. Nobody wanted to listen to me, except the Yaisan was supposed Yaisan Sanur is very nice. Of course, Ibu, please, please. But what to do? So nothing happened. Now, number two, I started to talk to a lot of people. People say, oh, yeah, we want to help you. I said, okay, so what to do? Nothing happened. So then the third one, I said, oh, we cannot do this. We have to be grassroots. So then I involved Yayasan uh, Kopernik to help because they are, they are an NGO who understood more grassroots work. So, of course, it's been months of surveying the Banjar, and every single Banjar has a different problem. One doesn't have any collection. Two has a lot of, uh, apa ya, doesn't have a waste bank. And because in Bali, every community is, uh, there's a law, right? In Bali, the governor actually has passed laws. But, but the laws have not, uh, uh, no policies have been passed to help the execution of this law. One law is no single-use plastic. Bali is way ahead. How, but is it, being, is it being policed? You know, not really. I mean, maybe, you know, to a certain extent, I mean, it's helped tremendously, but there's still like, I don't know, 30 to 40%. That's, you know, people like, oh, well, you know, if nobody complains. If tourists complain, it happens, which is one of the good things about Bali, that tourists can complain. They're big stakeholders. So that's one thing. So then... Uh, the other thing is a law has been passed that every community has to take care of its own waste. Don't send it to the TPA, you know, or else don't send those things that you can take care of yourself to the TPA. Hey, that's easy to say, but what do you need to do that? So we have found that every single banjar has a different problem. So it's not easy. So now I'm trying to get around these issues to say, okay, if that is so, you know, what do we do? So we're trying to set a model for Pantai, you know, pesisir or pantai, the beach. How do you manage to, to have a communities interested to keeping the beach clean? And in Bali, it's very relevant because of our tourism. So this is one way that I'm trying Satnur to feel better, you know, because, you know, at a bigger level, you know, I don't care if it's a woman or whatever, people just don't want to talk about the environment. You know, of course, the headlines are all there, big headlines, this headline, that, but then the Bali, uh, uh, how to say, uh, the Bali Tourism Board, the Tourism Authority, the government is like, we need to solve the COVID first, Ibu. That's our first priority, number one. Number two, we don't have the money to do anything with the environment because the environment always needs uh, a huge amount of change, right? In people's minds, in infrastructure, you know, and you need a deeper understanding because environmentalism is a long-term thing. It's not COVID. COVID is probably two, three years, yeah? Well, everybody's looking two, three years, we go back to normal. The environment is long-term. Water protection is long-term. I mean, I'm a supporter of the Bali Water Protection Program. You may know. I'm one of the, you know, sort of, you know, supporters. You know, I got the report and everything. So the point is, it's a long-term thing. And how do you invest in long-term? How do you invest in public goods? Public good, you know, is something that's quite difficult sometimes for people to understand until they feel the effects, which is not a great thing. 
So anyway, these are the big discussions that I'm still having with these people, you know, not these people, with, with the authority, so to speak, for, for people who are stakeholders to say, look, we can't just sit around and not build better. So anyway, I decided, you know what, I'll just do my own thing and probably, hopefully, this will become an example. It'll go on social media. So I found that social media, YouTube, those are the things that the people in power listen to and look at. As you know, Gary was uh, became who, you know, yeah. noticed because, and you know, I was one of the supporters of his initial write down uh, Citarum. Yeah. yeah. So, so uh, you know, uh, I decided that's the route I'll take. We take the communication route just because it's so hard to, because governments, they're all in little ivory towers, you know? Yes. Yeah, so if this one wants to do something, he can't do something unless the other one, again. I'm like, okay, never mind. Let me do something which will, you know, make all of you, you know, sort of wake up a little bit. So hopefully that little bit can do something. That's how I am at the moment. Susie, um, we are out of time now. Oh, yeah. I've gone way over time, but hopefully people will listen to this to the end because the whole point is building on experience. A woman in business who's built a fantastic franchise with responsibility built in. One of the things which comes through in your discussion is that you don't leave it behind and add it on or do it to compensate the way people are now saying, I can still pollute but buy carbon credits and all of that stuff. I don't really believe in that myself. I have to say it's building it in to make things better. You have been a great inspiration to us um, and we thank you very much. Uh, for being with us today and we thank you for all of the work you're doing and everybody who's been listening take this as an example a woman who's made things happen and hasn't stopped yet thank you very much Ibusus. thank you very much Alastair good to speak to you thanks for listening to this episode of Now Indonesia with me Alistair Spears I'll be back with you soon to bring you more interesting people and more interesting subjects on life in Indonesia. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast or even share with a friend if you've enjoyed our discussion today. Thank you and bye for now.